Please turn with me to the book of Matthew, Matthew chapter 20. Matthew chapter 20, we're going to be in the first uh, 16 verses. When I was a kid, um, from time to time in various circumstances, uh, I would say to my parents, that just doesn't seem fair. And my parents inevitably responded, life is not fair. So you've heard that before. Yeah, it was really annoying, wasn't it? Life's not fair, but I want it to be fair. And say, well, it's not fair. You won't always be treated as you deserve or how you think you deserve to be treated. Life is not fair. But, you know, from time to time, that that theory would be tested. I remember when my sister was 16, uh, she got the family car. It was, it was an old car. It was, you know, it wasn't a great car. It was an Oldsmobile Cutlass Supreme. We lived in New York, so it was rusted out. But she got a car. And so I assumed when I was 16 that I would get a car. And you know what I did? I got a car. It wasn't either a you know, great car, anything to look at. Pontiac Granville, $800 wonder that we put on the road. But that was fair, right? She got a car, I got a car. Fair, right? And, and I remember earlier in our lives when my parents started giving us an allowance. My sister got an allowance. And so I assumed fair is fair. I would get an allowance. You know what I did? I did. I got, I got the same allowance. Because right? fair is fair, right? Even though she did more chores around the house and she had to buy her own clothes and everything. But, but that was fair, right? We needed the same amount of money. Fair's fair. But not all circumstances in life turned out to my favor. When I was a student at uh, Texas A&M, I applied uh, right, after, right before my junior year for a scholarship in our department. It was a departmental scholarship, and I got the scholarship. So the next year I applied for the same scholarship Again, and I didn't receive the scholarship, but I had maintained the same grade point average, and I was involved in even more extracurricular activities, so I thought to myself, this isn't fair. I need to go plead my case, because it always works so well with my parents. <laughs> It'll work well with the Texas A&M University Administrator, right? So I, I went into the office of uh, the professor who was running this uh, program for the scholarship, and I said, you know, as respectfully as I could, hey, this is not fair. You gave me this scholarship last year, and my grades are the same, extracurricular is the same. Why didn't I get it this year? And he said to me, he said, you know, we thought it was kind of strange that you didn't apply again. I I did apply. Well, you know, shuffle, 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 looks through some papers on his desk, and lo and behold, there was my scholarship application. And I said, that's not fair. I want some money. Well, there was no money. It had all been given out. Life is not fair, right? And we probably can all name one incident after another where life wasn't fair to us, right? Didn't get that raise, others did. Didn't get promotion, others did. Didn't get enough playing time, others did. Who maybe even weren't as well qualified. Life is not fair, right? But at least God's fair, isn't he? Uh, I'm going to suggest this morning that we don't actually need fair from God. We need grace, We need something that's really much better than fairness. We need grace. So in Matthew chapter 20, Jesus is going to tell a parable. And it's a parable about the governing principle of the kingdom of God, which is not, in fact, fairness, but grace. Okay, so let's read together. Matthew chapter 20, verse 1. For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner 
who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard, when he had agreed with the laborers for a denarius for the day, he sent them into his vineyard. And he went out about the third hour and he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And to those he said, you also go into the vineyard and whatever is right, I will give you. And so they went. And he went out about the sixth hour again and the ninth hour and he did the same thing. And about the eleventh hour he went out and he found others standing around. He said to them, why are you standing here idle all day long? They said to him, because no one hired us. He said to them, you too go into the vineyard. When evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last group to the first. When those who, hi- who were hired at the 11th hour came, each one received a denarius. So when those hired first came, they thought that they would receive more, but each of them also received just a denarius. When they received it, they grumbled at the landowner saying, these last men have worked only one hour and you've made them equal to us who have borne the burden and the scorching heat of the day. But he answered and said to one of them, friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what is yours and go, but I wish to give to this last man the same as to you. Is it not lawful for me to do what I wish with what is my own? Or is your eye envious because I am generous? So the last shall be first, and the first shall be last. This is a parable about the kingdom and how the kingdom of God is governed under his reign as a reflection of his character, and the ruling principle is grace. And I want to give you a few characteristics of this ruling principle of grace. The first is this. Grace is God's pursuit of us. Grace is God's pursuit of us. Read with me again the first two verses of this parable, chapter 20, verses 1 and 2. It says, For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. When he had agreed with the laborers for denarius for the day, he sent them into his vineyard. This is a parable. Remember, it's just a story. Jesus made up the story, but he would often use these made-up stories that were just completely common and ordinary and everyday. So all of his audience could, could hear this story and they could say, yeah, I can picture that. I can relate to that. This is a common scene. In every town, there was a marketplace and people bought and sold their goods and day laborers waited there in the marketplace, hoping that someone would hire them for the day because if no one hired them, they would go hungry. The, the, The day laborers were in fact at the very bottom of the economic ladder. Right? Even below slaves, because slaves were attached to a wealthy family, so they didn't have to worry about starving every day. They didn't have to worry about their family starving every day. But the day laborer was dependent every day upon finding work. He would work 12 hours a day, 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. was the work day, and receive a denarius, which was roughly equivalent to about 18 cents for the day. Just enough in Jesus' day to feed his family for one more day. And then he would go to the marketplace again and hope that he would find labor. So Jesus tells this parable, just a common, ordinary, everyday scene everyone could relate to and understand. The laborer dependent upon someone coming and finding them and putting them to useful labor. First principle of grace is this. Grace is God's pursuit of us. Grace is God initiating with us. One thing to observe in this parable is that the landowner holds all the cards. 
Right? It's, it's his land, it's his vineyard, it's his grapes, it's his money. At the end, he will say, isn't it lawful for me to do what I wish with what is mine? All of this is mine. So, in other words, there, no transaction will actually occur unless the landowner goes and pursues and initiates. And many women, that is what God does for us. There's another parable that Jesus told with a similar point. It's a parable of the wedding feast. In that parable, God is a king and he has a son and he wants to throw a wedding feast for his son. And so he invites lots of guests, but none of the guests want to come. They're all busy with lots of different things. And so he sends his servants out into the highways and byways, go to the back roads, and he says, gather anyone who will come. Jew, Gentile, slave, free, old, young, Rich, poor, just gather them because I want my place to be filled. And so the king initiates, the king pursues, and that is the fundamental quality of the grace of God is that he chases us. God is not passive. God wants us to be in relationship with him, and so he comes after us. Grace is God's pursuit of us. Second, God's grace is available to all. Read with me again verse verse 3. It says, he went out again about the third hour and he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And to those he said, you also go into the vineyard and whatever is right I will give you. So they went. Again he went about, out about the sixth hour and the ninth hour he did the same thing. About the eleventh hour he went out and he found others standing around. He said to them, why have you been standing here idle all day long? They said, because no one hired us. So he said to them, you too go into the vineyard and work. Second characteristic of God's grace is this. It's available to all. The landowner goes out at 6 a.m. That's the beginning of the workday. But then he goes back to the marketplace at 9 a.m., at noon, at 3 p.m., even at 5 p.m. with just one hour of work left in the day. He continues to go out. And in the parable, God the Heavenly Father is the owner of the vineyard. And so it's not because he failed to plan that he goes back into the marketplace time after time after time. This is an illustration Right? This is a parable of the nature of God. And what it shows us is that God keeps going out. And he continues to seek. And he continues to pursue. Because life in his family is available to absolutely everyone. Paul would tell Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 2, God our Savior desires all people to be saved. And to come to a knowledge of the truth. Absolutely everyone. Space is unlimited in the kingdom of God. Now, I'm guessing that most of you uh, heard about the United Airlines incident this week, just in case you happen to miss that pretty, pretty big uh, news story this week. United Airlines oversold a flight. Imagine that. Like... <laughs> Or maybe you've never been on one of those flights before. They oversold the flight. So uh, all the seats are filled, but they needed to put a few more people on. Particularly, they had apparently four of their uh, workers that they needed to transport to another city to work. So they needed four extra seats. And so they began to offer vouchers, and no one took them up on that. I think the flight was Sunday night. Everybody wanted to get home, right? So they offered vouchers, then they offered cash. Nobody's taken them up on that. So they selected the lowest priority flyer on that flight, and they said, uh, sir, it was uh, Dr. David Dow. He said, um, Mr. Dow, you, you need to get off the plane. And he said, no, I'm not, get, I'm not getting off the plane. 
And so, well, you have to get off the plane. He said, I'm not getting off the plane. And so they drug him off the plane. And maybe you saw the pictures, right? In the process, apparently he broke his nose and got a concussion. I mean, it's, this, it's like it got crazy fast. You have to get off the plane. So we can get our four employees onto the plane, right? And it's huge outrage, right? Huge outrage. But for me, it was an illustration. Imagine if the kingdom of God was like that, right? It's your day to board the plane to heaven. And here you go. And there are people all around the world who are getting on that plane, all going to heaven. But all of a sudden, Peter looks at the passenger list and he realizes, no, we've oversold for today. There's just, I'm sorry, but you know, once you hit the gate, there's just not going to be enough room. And so we're going to peel off a few of you lower priority people. Can you imagine? Oh, thank God. That's not how the kingdom of God is. There's always an available seat. Isaiah puts it like this in the Lord's words. He says, behold, ho, everyone, come, come to the waters and drink freely. If you are thirsty, drink. Because this fountain just keeps flowing and flowing and flowing. Relationship with God in the kingdom of God forever is available to absolutely everyone. In fact, in this story, the owner actually goes after the low priority people. Right? He keeps going into the marketplace, and these men who are still standing around are described as idle. Literally, uh, they are worthless. They, these are people who are wasting their lives. And that's who the landowner goes at, after. The ones whose lives are wasted and worthless. And so I, I wonder, as you hear this parable, who do you relate to in the parable? Because right, that's kind of how parables are designed so that we would see ourselves in uh, one of the characters or maybe more than one of the characters. So who do you relate to? Maybe uh, you relate to those who got hired at the 11th hour. So, you know, largely as I look back on my life, I've, I've wasted my life. And maybe sometimes that just overwhelms you with a sense of sadness. And you say to yourself, why? Why would God even bother with one like me? Why would God continue to chase after one like me? Paul's first letter to Timothy, he described himself as a little bit of his autobiography in the first chapter, and he said this, it is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners among whom I am foremost of all. Paul said, I'm late to the game. I'm the last of the apostles. I'm the last one to really figure this out. I was actually putting Christians in jail and taking all their property and, and making sure that they were murdered. I'm a blasphemer, a violent aggressor, a persecutor of the church. I'm a murderer. And yet God showed me grace so that in me as the foremost of sinners, I would be an example to anyone who says to themselves, well, I'm late to the game. Why bother? Christ came for sinners just like you. That's, That's what God's grace is for. It's for people just like that. Just like us. Or maybe you don't actually relate to the, um, the one who came late to the game. Maybe, and I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand or anything, right? but maybe you relate to uh, the workers who started right at the beginning. You know, and you've borne the burden in the heat of the day, and you've always, you, you say to yourself, well, I was born a Christian. You know, I was born, and we just, uh, you know, Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, choir, I got baptized, I've been on missions trips, I give 10%, sometimes nine, but usually 10, but I mean, I'm just, I'm on it, right? I'm just, I am on it. And then 
these people just kind of keep finding their way in. And it's a little bit frustrating because I can't find a place to park and I can't find a seat. And I want to say, God, what are you thinking? Right, go for the high quality people like, like me. So I'm not asking you to raise your hand, but I, w- I would say this. Every time that Jesus told a parable, all, all around there was always a, a Pharisee or two who regarded themselves as righteous and were told, looked at others with contempt. And so Jesus always called them out. And he always called them out. Philip Yancey wrote a, a really good book, uh, What's So Amazing About Grace? And he, he made this observation He said, many Christians who study this parable identify with the employees who put in a full day's work rather than the add-ons at the end of the day. We like to think of ourselves as responsible workers and the employer's strange behavior baffles us as it did the original hearers. We risk missing the story's point that God dispenses gifts, not wages. None of us gets paid according to merit. For none of us comes close to satisfying God's requirement for a perfect life. The standard is absolute perfection because that's who God is. And none of us comes close. Years ago when uh, I was teaching across the street in the college ministry, we had a particular season where a lot of fraternity guys were coming. They were coming because uh, cute sorority girls were there. And that was, that was what was driving them. And I actually had one of uh, our other college students come to me at one point, and he said, you know, those guys are all, they're all getting drunk Saturday night, and they're showing up here, and they're hungover. And you know that, don't you? And, I mean, the, you know, his implication was, and so why don't you kick them out, right? I mean, that, I mean that, was, that was the impression that I'm getting. I said, well, that's why Jesus died. I think that they're coming and they just don't get it yet. But the grace of God is drawing them and it's inviting them. And maybe they're coming just because there are cute girls here, but they're in the door. And then they can hear the gospel. And they won't change, in fact, until they believe in the gospel and receive the power of God's spirit to transform their desires and their loves and their affections and their motivations. That Those are exactly the kinds of people for whom Christ died. And so you read this parable, and really we should identify with the man who was hired at the 11th hour. That's where we should dial in. The Apostle Paul puts it like this For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. But all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. What's the standard to be in relationship with God? What's the glory of God? And what's the glory of God? What's the sum total, in a sense, the composite picture of the attributes of God that is all of his perfections, and there's not a single area of perfection that you measure up to, right? Not perfectly kind or perfectly just or perfectly patient, perfectly loving. In no area do we measure up to God's absolute perfect standard. So in a sense, really, we don't measure up. We're the ones hired at the 11th hour. We don't deserve to be hired. We're idle. Our lives are worthless. And yet God comes after us, right? For whom Christ died. These are the kind of people. And then once we're brought into the family, we don't really, if we're honest, contribute that much, right? It's not that God needs us to do these great and wonderful things for the kingdom, right? That's honestly, uh, David put it in very poetic terms. He said it like this. 
is speaking for God. He says, if I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world is mine and all it contains. Right? God says, I don't need you to feed me. I don't need you to bring me these sacrifices. I don't need a meal from you because everything that's out there, I'm the landowner. And it's all my land. It's all my land. Right? We should relate to that one, hired at the 11th hour. Now, as you know, um, I don't like cats that much, but it's amazing how many illustrations I get from our cat. So I think that God gave us a cat for you so that I could illustrate <laughs> things from, from our, our cat's life, right? So uh, for, for you who may be visiting this morning, our cat's name is Tuxedo. We call uh, our cat Tux, a little black and white cat. And Tux is actually a really good hunter, which in my mind is the only thing that validates Tux's existence. But... <laughs> Tux hunts. And so in his hunting, he frequently brings us gifts, right? We get birds and we get uh, mice. We've even gotten rabbits, like full-size rabbits. I'm like, wow, this cat can hunt, right? This is, a, this is a hunting cat, but we don't need any of these gifts. <laughs> my, my wife would really prefer that they not be left, right? She'd go, go get rid of that thing. You know, oh, good catch. go, oh, you know. We don't need the gifts. Really, there's, there's nothing that Tux contributes to our family. <laughs> it's all grace, right? It's, it's all... We went to the local animal shelter and ransomed him from slavery <laughs> into this wonderful life that he gets to experience now. That's grace. Now, the terrible thing about the metaphor that I'm giving you right now is in the metaphor, I'm Tux and you're Tux. No better than an animal shelter cat. Because all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And so God in his rich mercy brings us into his family and he makes our lives useful, although he doesn't actually need us, but then the things that he does through us, through the power of his spirit, he rewards us for. That's all grace. Men and women, that is all grace. Grace is available to all. Grace is beyond fair. Read with me again verse 8. It says, When evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, Call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last group first. When those who were hired about the 11th hour came, each one received a denarius. So how much did they actually deserve? Well, that one who worked just one hour deserved a a twelfth. But the one who was hired at 9 a.m., noon, 3 p.m., 5, even though they had all worked different numbers of hours, all received a denarius. You know what, men and women, that's not fair. Okay, forget about the ones who worked the whole day. We'll, We'll talk about them in just a minute. But just think about the ones who worked a partial day, they all received the same amount. That's not fair. If by fair we mean equal treatment, exact treatment for everyone, right? equal pay, equal work. God's not fair in that respect. God doesn't actually treat everyone exactly the same way. You were born in a different place and time than I was. Different family, different body, different uh, gifts and talents and abilities, different experiences in your life. All of those things are different. That's not fair. It's not exactly equal treatment. But what they got was way beyond fair. They didn't work a whole day, but they got an entire day's wages. Right? That is grace. By definition, uh, unearned, 
Undeserved, unmerited. That is, that is the definition of grace. You don't deserve it, but God gives it anyway. So if you don't earn it, how do you get it, so to speak? John chapter 1, verse 12. John writes, But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. Right? To receive is to believe. And when you believe or receive, you become a child of God. You become a part of his family. What does that mean? That means since you can't earn it and you don't deserve it, you just reach out and say, thank you. And God, in a sense, puts life in your hands. It's by faith. Okay? By grace, through faith. Or as the Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 4, verse 5, now, to the one who works, his wage is credited is not credited as a favor or grace, right? If you work and then you get your wage, that's not grace. You earned it. But, on the other hand, to the one who does not work, but instead believes in him who justifies the ungodly, faith is credited as righteousness, right? To the one who doesn't work, who doesn't come to God and say, look at all the wonderful things that I've done, especially compared to all these people who came late to the game, but instead comes with absolutely empty hands and says, I have nothing really to offer you that would merit life with you and the removal of this debt of sin. And yet I come and I beg, save me. And God says, I would love to save you. I would love to rescue you because that's what I do. That's the nature of how I govern my kingdom. I give what is not deserved. That's grace, right? Undeserved favor and blessing from God. Far beyond fair, right? So think of it this way. God punished my sin in Jesus. That's not fair. Then God gives me eternal life that Jesus won. That's not fair. It's not fair to Jesus. But that's grace to me. Grace is free to me because it was costly to Jesus. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow, not because of any good that I had done, but simply as a gift. Okay? Grace is better than fair. Fourth characteristic. Grace is better than justice. Read me chapter 2, verse 10. When those hired first came, they thought that they would receive more. But each one of them also received a denarius. When they received it, they grumbled at the landowner, saying, these last men have worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us, who have borne the burden and the scorching heat of the day. But he answered and he said to one of them, friend, I'm doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what is yours and go. But I wish to give to this last man the same as to you. Is it not lawful for me to do what I wish with what is my own? Or is your eye envious because I am generous? Right? Grace is better than justice. But grace is never less than justice. Right? These men got what they deserved. Right? They had worked an entire day. And the agreement was for denarius. You notice actually in verse 2 and then again I think in verse 13, he uses the word symphoneo. We get the word symphony from it. It means to agree together or if we can state it differently, they had a contract. They made a contract with the landowner for denarius. Why did they make a contract with the landowner? 
Why do we ever make contracts with anyone? Because we don't trust each other. That's, that's why we do contracts. Because we don't want this relationship to get down the road and we are not treated justly. So we put it all in writing and we make lots of forms and we pay our lawyers lots of money to make sure that we will get treated justly because we don't trust one another. Okay, this week was really rich with illustrations for me. I got another one for you. There was a man in Florida. Uh, his name was uh, Jan Flato, age 66, and he was playing the slots, $50 slots. I didn't even know such existed, right? So each time he pulls the lever, he's putting in 50 bucks, right? but he's not making anything. His luck is just cold. So he looked at his friend who was sitting there, uh, Marina Navarro, and he said, Marina, you push the button, you pull the lever, because maybe that will bring us good luck. And sure enough, he puts in his 50 bucks. She pushes the button, boom, $100,000. He won. Except he didn't win it. Because the uh, people who managed the casino came over, they reviewed the video, and since she pushed the button, she won the $100,000. They handed her the $100,000, and she walked out the door. <laughs> Isn't that awesome for us, right? That's a great illustration for me. I mean, 100000 bucks. It's like, uh, I thought we were friends. See ya. He should have had a contract, right? He should have negotiated. She didn't even offer to share it with him. The first workers put the landowner under contract because they didn't trust. The later workers went out into the field because the landowner said, first, whatever's just and right, I'll give it to you. Trust me. The last one went out to work one hour and he just said, go work in my field. Didn't promise them anything. They just trusted. Right? Men and women, we don't, we don't need fairness and honestly, we don't need justice. We need something way better than justice. We need grace. Right? We need grace. Fifth characteristic of grace in the kingdom of God is this. Grace is unparalleled in the world. So you can't find grace like this in the world. The best that we hope for is justice and maybe a measure of fairness. That's what we hope to get in the world. We don't always even get that, but we don't get mercy and we don't get grace from the world. But that's not how the, the world order works. That's not how the system works in the world. Uh, I'm an economics major and I remember in first class we were taught the acronym TANSTAFFEL. Right? There ain't no such thing as a free lunch, right? That, that governs, that's the ruling principle of the world. And the other one is this, life is not fair, right? We learn these things from the time that we're tiny and can even just begin to speak. There's no such thing as a free lunch. Life is not fair. Best you can hope for is just a measure of justice, but not grace. And even the religions of the world, you don't experience grace. Judaism, if you obey, then you'll be blessed. If you disobey, then you'll be cursed. That's not grace. That's law. Islam, obey the five pillars and you can hope for heaven. Hinduism and Buddhism operate according to a principle of karma. Your good will be rewarded in that next life and your bad will be punished in that next life. So you better hope that in each life you do a little bit more good than bad so that progressively in life after life after life you can achieve something that is better than what you're suffering right now. But at the end of the day, you're going to get what you deserve. Right? Even, even the religions of the world operate this way. Years ago, there was a conference on religion. 
And all of these specialists in religion were debating the merits of different religions. And they came to Christianity. And their debate was this. Is there anything that actually separates Christianity from the rest of these religions? And they considered incarnation. Well, no, we have other religions in which gods take on human flesh. Well, what about resurrection? No, there are, there are times that, that men have been raised from the dead or stories of, of such. So about that time, C.S. Lewis walked into this convention and he, in classic fashion, he said, so what's all this rumpus about? What are you arguing about here? They said, what we're arguing and discussing, is there anything that sets Christianity apart? And he said, oh, that's easy. It's grace. It's grace. For by grace, you've been saved through faith. That's not of yourselves. It's a gift of God. Not as a result of works, so that no one can boast. That's the beautiful, unlimited, matchless, unparalleled grace of God available to absolutely everyone. Thank you, Carl. (laughs) Can't get it anywhere else. Just through Jesus Christ. So how do we apply this? Well, I want you to read with me a couple more verses. Go back to 17, chapter 20, verse 17. It says, as Jesus was about to go up to Jerusalem, he took the 12 disciples aside by themselves. And on the way, he said to them, behold, we're going up to Jerusalem. The Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests, the scribes. They will condemn him to death. They will hand him over to the Gentiles to mock and scourge and crucify him. And then on the third day, he will be raised up. Right? So Jesus finishes telling them a parable about the nature of the kingdom and it is governed by grace. And then he describes for them or predicts the ultimate act of grace that the world would ever see or experience. That is his death and burial and resurrection. Right? God punishing my sins in Jesus, not fair, but grace. God raising him up from the dead, demonstrating that God said, yeah, that sacrifice is enough for all of you who've ever lived. And then God offering us eternal life that Jesus won, that we didn't win. That's not fair, but that's grace. That's the grace of God. So first application is really simple. Receive it. John chapter 1 verse 12, again, but as many as received him. To them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. So what does it mean? Right? Christians talk a lot about believing or faith. Same word in Greek. What does it mean to believe? Some of you may not have yet believed and you don't want to believe because as you understand belief, it's just this blind leap, right? Check my intellect at the door and walk in to church and hear lots of mumbo jumbo, especially on Easter, about Jesus, right? Just check it at the door. That's not it. It's not a blind leap of faith. It's, It's actually looking at the evidence and coming to the most reasonable conclusion about what is true. And if you have not yet become convinced, I'm going to recommend to you uh, two books. And uh, if you don't get these titles down, you can come up and look at them afterwards. This is The Reason for God, a little more uh, current book by Timothy Keller, Belief in an Age of Skepticism, The Reason for God, excellent book, Case for Christ, uh, Lee Strobel, his story just came out in a movie. These are two excellent books to begin that process for you, maybe of becoming convinced that Jesus actually did live on this earth and do miracles and die and rise from the dead. 
It's not a blind leap. It is looking at the evidence and coming to the most reasonable conclusion. Or some of you may think to yourself, well, it's absolute certainty. It's proof. And I would say, no, it's not. I can't prove to you that Jesus rose from the dead. I can validate it. I can demonstrate, show you the evidence of it, but I can't prove it. Let me illustrate what I mean by that. Uh, For years, I've had college guys come into my office and they say, I know I've found the one. I know it. I know she's the one. I know, I know she's the one, right? I know it. I know it. And, you know, first thought that pops into my mind is, yeah, but does she know it? But I don't say that. I don't say that. I don't say, but I think it. Does she know? No, actually what I say is this. Can you prove it? Can you empirically prove to me that she's the one? The answer is no. You have faith. Or if I can say it differently, you become convinced. You are persuaded that she's the one because all of the evidence seems to line up. First of all, she's interested. (laughs) That's good. That's a start. Right? You kind of move in the same direction in life. You like similar things. You have shared interests and you really enjoy being together. You have become persuaded. Can you prove it? No, but you're persuaded. You are convinced. Men and women, that's faith. And what happens in my analogy is this, that you're convinced, you're persuaded, and now you're trying to persuade her and convince her. And you're willing to entrust your life based upon this evidence to her. And now you're going to ask her to entrust her life to you. And what will happen if you get married is this, you're going to take a step of faith. You can't prove it, but you're going to stand in front of me and each of you will take a step of faith. Will you possibly even have some fears and doubts in that moment? Yeah, but you're going to exercise courage because you're convinced and you will entrust your lives to one another. That's faith. And maybe you're sitting out there this morning and and you say, well, I can't prove God and I can't prove the resurrection. I, I, I understand, but the spirit can persuade you that this is true. And then I challenge you to make a decision to take a step of courageous faith and say to God, I trust you with my life. I trust you with my eternity. Thank you. I believe that Jesus has taken away my debt of sin and you alone can give me eternal life. And I would encourage you this morning, if you've never never taken that particular step of courageous faith, that you would do it today. Don't miss this moment, this opportunity. Believe. Second application for those of you who have believed is really simple. Share it. If you get a really, really, really great gift and it's just overflowing out, uh, your hands can't hold it all. It's pouring through your fingers. Then really, why don't you just take it and, and share it with somebody else? You know, that's the nature of the grace of God. It's abundant riches, Paul tells us. More than you can hold in your hands. So what do you do with such a gift? Well, you take it out and you share it and you share it and you share it. And you know what? As you do so, more and more just gets poured into your hands. Church, this is why we're here, right? Christmas is great and it gets lots of hype, but Easter's the point. The death and burial and resurrection of Jesus. And we're all going to have different jobs because we were born in different families with different skills and aptitudes and we have different ages and different relationships that we move through. But the point of our lives body of Christ, church, is this, that as long as we're walking on this earth, we're talking and telling and serving in the name of Jesus Christ, right? And let's not miss that point. So whether we start early in the morning or we came into the game late in the afternoon, our lives are useful to the landowner, to the King of kings and Lord of lords, as we engage people in the gospel of Jesus Christ.
Let me pray for us. Father, we do thank you for the powerful name of Jesus. Name above all names, the name that has no parallel. Because it's the name through which we experience your grace, your unconditional favor and love, unearned by us. Father, make us grateful this morning for Jesus. Father, we thank you for the grace that we have in Jesus Christ. You poured out your riches upon us, undeserved, unmerited, unearned, and yet uh, you've granted us uh, all that we need in Christ. We thank you, Father, that we can walk out of here with uh, our shame and guilt removed in Jesus, that we can walk out of here with a sense of purpose and meaning. And I pray, Father, that this week we would live uh, powerfully in that sense of your unconditional love for us. And I pray, Father, that sense of acceptance by you and space and place in your family would just give us courage to share the grace we've received. In Jesus' name, amen. He is risen, church. All right, have a great Easter.